Welcome back to the podcast. This is Carter Clement from Children's Hospital of New Orleans, and uh, we've got a special episode today. This is coverage of the upcoming 2021 annual meeting. I uh, hope to see a lot of you guys listening out there this year in Dallas, and uh, at least hear some of the meeting for the people that can't make it. So we are covering the sports subspecialty day session today. If you're listening to us right now on Peds Ortho, please be sure at some point to check out the Ped Sports Podcast as well, which is exclusively pediatric and adolescent sports medicine content. And uh, this episode will be popping up as a bonus on um, both podcasts. And of course, if you are coming to us through Ped Sports and you have a general Ped's practice or interest, please check out Ped's Ortho. I am joined by several great minds of pediatric sports medicine. We've got two moderators, Dr. Jennifer Beck from UCLA and Eric Edmonds from Rady Children's Hospital. Hi, guys. Welcome. Howdy. Hey, thanks for having us. like that Dallas howdy. Um, <laughs> so as anyone who's listened before knows, we try to let the audience get to know the, the guests on the show a little bit. So if I can put you guys on the spot a tiny bit and uh, ask you, Dr. Beck, where, where are you from originally before UCLA? And uh, can you tell us any fun facts about your hometown that we may not know? Yeah, so uh, I was originally born in the kind of foothills outside of Denver, but I spent most of my childhood in the Bay Area. The particular town is called Foster City. I guess two fun facts that come up about it is one is that the actual city itself was basically a landfill extension of the bay uh, <laughs> that was filled into the bay back in, I don't even know, 60s, 70s. But it made things very interesting when I lived there and lived through the 89 earthquake, the big uh, Loma Prieta earthquake that we had there that everyone was worried we were going to fall off into the bay. But the good news is we didn't. And I lived through it, even though I had nightmares for a long time about major earthquakes. Yet I still huh. live in Los Angeles. I thought you were going to say the ground was opening up and trash was coming out. <laughs> no, thankfully, thankfully not. We did have levees that we were worried about, but it, uh, the construction and the engineering held up well. And Eric, what about you? Yeah, so I actually uh, was born in California, and within being like 18 months old, uh, we landed in Carlsbad, California, which is down here in San Diego, so kind of homegrown to where I'm working right now. Uh, a lot of cool things about Carlsbad, I mean, we have like the largest desalination plant in the entire state. Uh, we got Legoland, the first expansion of Legoland outside of Europe. The fact that maybe people don't know is uh, Tony Hawk and Sean White, some pretty famous, we'll call them athletes, kind of grew up and uh, lived in Carlsbad. So, you know, no earthquakes uh, to be scared about per se, but uh, a lot of other fun facts. Yeah, that's a pretty serious claim to fame for uh, extreme sports. Yeah, for sure. And as for our authors, well, I should say Dr. Edmonds is here both as a moderator and an author, and we're going to be talking about his uh, paper on capsular repair in a little bit. And then also on the line, we've got John Schlechter from Children's Hospital of Orange County. John, welcome. Thanks for coming. Thank you, Carter. Thanks for having me. I am uh, born and bred, as they say, in New York, Queens, uh, right between the Bronx and Brooklyn, probably well known to lots of people, but I can remember growing up in the 80s and... Unlike Tony Hawk, I had LL Cool J uh, down the block from me, and I remember seeing him at the local Burger King, so that was kind of a fun fact. And uh, home of the Mets and Belmont Racetrack and good pizza. 
you probably get to catch up with LL a lot in, uh, in Los Angeles, huh? <laughs> I haven't seen him out here yet, but uh, I'm looking. Next up, Kathleen McGuire from CHOP. How are you? Doing well, thanks. Um, let's see. I'm originally from a small town called Hanover, Mass., which is just south of Boston, kind of splits the difference between uh, Boston and the Cape. Most often when I say Hanover, people assume it's New Hampshire. So I would say it's the less famous of the Northeastern Hanovers. Boston area, I mean, what can I say? I, I think it's a great, uh, great part of the country. We obviously have some of the best sports teams in the, in the country, not to rub any of that in for sure. We say cue the duck boats. Um, though we'll see. We lost our TB12, so we'll see what the future holds for the Pats. But really happy to be here, and thanks so much for involving me. Yeah, thank you. And last but not least, Dr. Samuel Vandeveld. And so you are at Columbia right now, and you are from Belgium originally. Is that correct? It is entirely correct, yes. Um, most people somehow think I'm from the Netherlands, which I'm not going to take it as an insult, but it is. <laughs> uh, and so, yeah, Belgium, I mean, I don't know. First of all, it's one of those places that nobody knows where it is. So if you take a train from, from the Netherlands... And you look outside for 15 minutes on the way to France. That's that's Belgium. Apparently, Belgium holds a world record for longest periods without a government. I thought that was kind of really interesting. So you just don't need a government. <laughs> what, what, how long is that period? Do you know? Now I'm going to have to Google that. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Well, uh, let's jump into the content. So first up, we're going to a paper from Dr. Schlechter. It is entitled, Do Continuous Peripheral Nerve Blocks Decrease Home Opioid Use Following ACLs? The authors looked at about 200 ACLs treated with either a single-shot nerve block or a continuous release block. The average narcotic use was only one hydrocodone, and 70% of the patients took no narcotics, and no one took over 10. So pretty amazing. There was no difference between single shots and then the continuous release catheters. In conclusion, it looks like the nerve blocks after the ACLs are very effective at reducing uh, narcotic use. And again, there will be more discussion and presentation of this at the upcoming annual meeting during Sports Subspecialty Day. But uh, with that, for now, I'll hand things over to Drs. Edmonds and Beck. Great. I think this is, you know, a really interesting paper and, and having, you know, done some work in, in publications on opioids and just pain management in general. I'd love to know a little bit more about what's your pre-op conversation with these patients, because I think so much of this is about setting expectations and, and just education. So can you go through a little bit what your, what your pre-op conversation is with these patients? I think that's the biggest part of this whole thing is kind of the setting the expectations. So when I started this project, I really thought that the continuous peripheral nerve block was going to blow the single shot nerve block out of the water and people who had the pump for their pain control would not take any narcotics and those who had the single shot would you know, consume narcotics. Everybody had the same conversation prior to surgery, whether you had the uh, single-shot peripheral nerve block, those were patients that were at the surgery center, where patients that were at the hospital were the ones who had the peripheral nerve block with the pump, just based off of availability of whether or not we had the reservoir ball, which was at the hospital. The conversation went uh, something like, when you get home, the idea here is to try to not to take narcotics at all and to alternate acetaminophen with ibuprofen, kind of spacing those out by about three hours. So most people were taking 
a thousand milligrams of acetaminophen and on, and on average 600 milligrams of uh, ibuprofen or trying to do 10 milligrams per kilogram if they were smaller patients. And then the prescription for the narcotic was placed in a sealed envelope. The idea of the sealed envelope was for me to try to figure out whether or not they took the narcotics, because otherwise it's kind of hard to know, like, did they take them? Did they not? And the way I kind of like recorded a success of not taking narcotics is they brought me back the envelope with the unfilled prescription. And then I checked everybody on cures, which is the state database to see if they filled the prescription. And uh, basically what was happening is everybody was bringing back the envelope and there really wasn't that much of a difference between the single shot and the continuous nerve block. Uh, we went to 200 patients, mostly to make sure the, the study was powered enough to detect the 20% difference in narcotic consumption between the two groups. But uh, I think really a lot of it was the conversation and the envelope kind of was like, you know, in emergency break glass. And I think it was one of these things where patients, families, uh, they really don't want their children on narcotics. And as a parent myself, I kind of share the same sentiment. And I think that that kind of was the driving force. And still to this day, even though I'm not collecting data on these patients anymore, I'm still sealing up the Norco prescription in an envelope. And it really changed my prescribing habit, where prior to this study, I used to give 30 pills of Norco um, and now I'm down to 10 pills for an ACL, five pills maybe for a knee scope or like an OCD drilling or something like that. And sometimes I'm not even giving a prescription if patients aren't wanting to take one home. John, have you considered using like oxycodone where it doesn't have the Tylenol mixed in like the Norcos? Something yeah, like I just that? I just never used oxycodone, you know, ever really in practice. I've always been a kind of Vicodin, Norco, hydrocodone, acetaminophen. And then part of the conversation too is like, if you had to, you know, in an emergency, you broke the glass, you opened the envelope and filled the prescription, I would tell them to lower their acetaminophen dosage. But, you know, most of these patients are off of drugs by two, three days. So even the concern of like acetaminophen, you know, overdosage and stuff like that, you know, I've been doing this for a fair amount of time. And nothing to my knowledge, you know, where you run into trouble with that stuff. I think it's just such a short period of time that it's, it's hard to get into trouble. But the, I do tell them, you know, to try to keep it at a gram of acetaminophen every six to eight hours or whatever. Do all of your patients get block or blocks or do you have an arm that you're potentially following that have no blocks to see really, you know, we're comparing two, two different types of blocks to see if the block is even necessary? Right. So I kind of designed this study too to not like kind of micromanage the perioperative work by everybody else. You know, so I didn't really call them and start telling them to take drugs before surgery. Um, I didn't mess with the anesthesiologist as to whether or not they wanted to like, you know, what they gave during surgery, Toradol or whatever. Most patients get Toradol. Um, I left it up to the anesthesiologist for block type. 70% of patients got adductor canal, which as you know, we all know is probably the preferred block for ACL surgery, but there was still 30% that got femoral nerve. There was no difference in block type, but we didn't really look at the power analysis for for that, but that work's kind of been done where, you know, we think adductor is as good as femoral and you protect the, you know, motor control. I think we could do even better than my numbers if we kind of, you know, change some of the perioperative stuff too, like kind of control the block, control the drug that is in the block. Cause some patients get, you know, ropivacaine or bupivacaine control, maybe having some, you know, preoperative medications and some postoperative control in the recovery room. None of that was really done. So this is something that I hope is translatable. And I think, you know, next steps would be to see if, you know, multiple surgeons could do this at multiple centers in some way, shape or form. So I invite uh, anybody who wants to join me on this crusade to put our minds together and see what else we can do and maybe make that 70%, you know, 95% not taking drugs after ACL surgery. Yeah. Nice. 
what about uh, the use of continuous pump now? Are you moving away from that? I thought that I was going to have that in all my centers because I think in the surgery center, if we wanted to bring that in, you know, there's a cost associated with it. I think they're like $500 or so, you know, per pump. And the surgery centers don't necessarily want to buy them. So that cost would have to kind of get transferred to the patient and the patient would have to bring the pump to the surgery center. And I thought that's the where we would have ended up, like, you know, when I started designing this study. But I don't even use them even at the main hospital because there's time associated with the pump. We don't have a block room. So all the blocks are done in the operating room. So that's operating room time, anesthesia time, time out of, you know, our schedule as surgeons. So unless the patient is like very young or it's a, you know, maybe a, a bigger reconstructive procedure, osteotomies, et cetera, would I consider it? But I really, I, I've kind of moved away from the continuous nerve blocks at this point. I think one of the other things kind of just to talk about on this topic is non-pharmacologic treatment of pain is, is what do you do regarding, you know, ice? Do, do they have ice machines? Do you do CPMs? Is anyone doing that anymore? What is what, what about, you know, mobility, distraction? So what are some of those other non-pharmacologic things that you provide for them? Yes, yeah, so everybody's cryotherapy with an uh, ice machine um, or ice packs, but I would say probably you know greater than 80% uh, had the cryotherapy. A lot of patients, families, even if the insurance doesn't approve the cryotherapy machine, that's probably you know sub $200, and I, I've had a lot of patients just get them or borrow them. You know, you'll get some used ones in that they use, and everybody gets a CPM still good, bad, or otherwise, but maybe, maybe that helps a little bit. Um, everybody gets a TED hose that they go home with, like, so they're in a thromboembolic stocking. I don't know if that makes much of a difference, but they're in that two to three days. And then if they can't sleep, because some of the people that did use the Norco, they only took like one or two pills for sleep. So now I've kind of entered that into my conversation. Like if you're having problems, you know, with sleep, maybe diphenhydramine, Benadryl, or melatonin. I love the idea of the, the sealed envelope. I'm sort of want to try that. Right. And what, you know, one of the things, uh, sorry, Carter, um, to interject this, but one of the things that came up with this is not everybody's on, you know, paper prescriptions. A lot of people do e-prescribing, right? So I don't have e-prescribing, you know, in my system right now. So I still have a paper prescription. So I I would say if you're an e-prescriber, then even if the prescription's filled at the pharmacy, I mean, my instructions would be not to go pick up the drugs. And I've had patients tell me, a 15-year-old boy, uh, after surgery, went to school and someone approached them and asked them if he could buy the rest of their drugs that they had left from surgery. So it's not even so much keeping the patient off the drugs, it's keeping the drugs out of the house, away from their siblings and out of the schools, because potentially, I guess there's kids out there drug seeking and, and looking to buy pills from children or adolescents that have had surgery. Great point. Have you had any problems or tell the patients anything about when the block is wearing off, I, I always worry that the pain's going to hit them kind of hard as the block wears off, especially if they're sleeping in the middle of the night and haven't had a dose recently. Is that something that you came across in this process? So 12 to 24 hours is usually when the block wears off. Prior to this study, when I was given 30 Norcos, I used to tell everybody to go home and take Norco. You know, the minute they got home, so when the block wore off, they'd have, you know, opioid on board. And now I tell them, don't take the Norco, go home, take Tylenol and Motrin, alternate them every three hours. So you're taking Tylenol at noon, 3 p.m. ibuprofen, you know, and then 6 p.m. or so, 8 p.m. back on Tylenol. So this way they have that circulating when the block wears off. And uh, on average, day two was kind of the worst day for the patients. You know, after day three, everybody was kind of pain controlled off of narcotics and kind of average VAS for the patient population was about a five across the three days. Perfect. All right, I know you got to run to a case. Um, what are you doing? 
ACL. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> so I just sealed the envelope and told the mom not to buy the drugs. Nice. All so, right. Well, but it's, uh, it's amazing that people want to, she's like, well, maybe I'll just go downstairs and I'll have them at, just in case. And I'm like, no, that's the whole idea. Like you really just don't want them, you know, in the house. All right. Thank you guys. Appreciate it. Thanks Hope to for see coming. you all next week. Yep. Thank Thanks, you. Thank you. Uh, let's move on to Kathleen and we're going to talk about Taylor OCD. So this is an abstract entitled predicting outcomes of Taylor OCD lesions in children. And uh, the authors looked back at 92 Taylor OCDs and created a nomogram that predicts whether a Taylor OCD will completely heal. So reminiscent of that, that classic wallpaper and JBJS predicting knee OCD healing. And so this gives you something you can use quickly in clinic to calculate the chance that the OCD will heal. And the authors found three factors that predict healing and included those in the nomogram. Specifically, that's healing is more likely with younger age, lower BMI, and surgical treatment as opposed to non-operative treatment. So over to Drs. Edmonds and Beck. So I think this is really interesting because um, I know I see a lot of consultations from our urgent care for kids who twist their ankle, have an OCD, and then get sent to me. So I think my first question is, is what was his patient population? Were these symptomatic OCDs? Were these incidental findings? Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Sure. So it was a combination of both. So it was actually over a 12-year period. That's how much kind of time it took to collect um, a total of 74 patients, but 92 lesions. Um, and they were just anyone with a diagnosis who kind of just went through the charts um, of an OCD. So some were incidental findings um, and some were patients that were coming in with uh, symptomatic lesions. So it was a combination of both. Was that something that you could factor in or, or that you put into your analysis is were, were these symptomatic lesions and were those more or less likely to heal? So that, that isn't something that we included. That is in the wallpaper. Um, so that's a, a really good point. No, that wasn't one of the variables that we uh, looked at. And whether that was just because of incomplete kind of notes or just kind of going through the uh, the charts, half electronic, half before. So some of that may have factored in, but that's a very good point, something that we should be looking at as well. And I, I love the idea of nomograms. I mean, I, they're very helpful and uh I mean, I, I always appreciate, like, especially Wall, you know, kind of putting that stuff out for the OCD in the beginning. And then seeing yours, I mean, I, I tried to look through and get a sense of like, hey, is there there's certain numbers I could just remember in clinic that mm -hmm. tell me like this one's more likely to do well versus this one's more likely to do poorly. Do you do you have a sense of that? Like, I'm not, I'm asking for like the nomogram for dummies. Like, <laughs> you know, do you have, do you have numbers that you kind of rely on in clinic kind of idea? Kind of at over 50% would be a patient like 14 or under. And then in terms of, you know, BMI, something 23 or below. So these are, you know, obviously thinner patients are the folks that are going to come out at that around that 50%. The interesting thing, you know, I think about nomograms, which I thought was just really interesting kind of when you run the data and I'm not a statistician by any means, but in terms of the actual kind of univariate analysis, the treatment did not have any effect. And then when you kind of created that model, kind of throwing in different combinations of things to, to add the surgical treatment did. And so that was one of my biggest hangups, kind of, do we trust the data? You're telling everyone they should go ahead and have, have surgery, you know, but it, it certainly is not to be used as a tool to make surgical decisions uh, by any means. And obviously we didn't necessarily look at clinical outcomes, uh, but I do think it, it offers a lot of information for folks who are, have had surgery or not, just to give them some type of sense of when we should see radiographic healing, which to me, you know, that's kind of where the idea started. And I have to give a lot of credit to Todd Lawrence, who is the one who really spearheaded this and has seen it all the way through. Just anecdotally, we, we feel like a lot of these lesions don't heal um, or not healing as quickly as we maybe see them in the knee or the, in the elbow. And so just giving families and patients a sense of when the paint's going to officially dry, I think is what we hope to get out of the project. 
I think it's really interesting when we just talk, you know, globally about OCDs and, and the different regions have very different expectations, outcomes, non-operative, operative indications. And, and you know, maybe my kind of approach to the tailless ones is a little bit of benign neglect. You know, maybe that's just the population I've seen. Do you have kind of a set sort of indications for when you were operating on these? And, and was it was it a size? Was it a symptoms um, that you could get kind of a general, you know, algorithm for what a non-operative versus operative treatment algorithm would be for these? Sure. So our study included three attending surgeons, and it really was at their discretion. Obviously, this was retrospective, so it would be interesting kind of moving forward. There was really no good correlation between stage and choice of surgical intervention, but it was really kind of up to those patients. Some patients' time from kind of non-operative treatment up to surgery was only you know a quarter of a month. We're talking about a week, so you can imagine those are the patients, obviously, with a loose body or something that looked unstable. I wasn't one of the attendings actually in the study, but um, in my one and a half years of experience, I'm still kind of teasing that out because it's it's true. I, I tend to let symptoms guide me, at least for now. You know, you certainly see a lot of these kids. And even post, I had a kid who was feeling great. You know, he's months out and OCD is just not completely healed, making progress, but not healed. And he said, I'll be honest, I went out and ran a 5K because I was feeling good. And, you know, in some of these kids, it's hard to keep them down, as as we all know, uh, when they start to clinically feel better. So if you guys have any good pearls or words of wisdom from a few more years of experience, I'm certainly all ears. Honestly, I think you figured out something that we all maybe took a little bit longer to figure out, which is, yeah, it doesn't have to be perfect on image, uh, particularly for the tailless. I think it's mm-hmm. more of how do they feel? And and uh, your, your kids are trying to teach you that too. Uh, it's always a good thing. I, my question is, is actually in the talus, and if you look at that foot and ankle literature, everything's kind of moved towards this idea of the osteochondral lesion of the talus versus the osteochondritis desiccans. Did you try to distinguish out like those various types uh, or not? What's your feelings on that? Unfortunately, we, we didn't in the study, but I do agree, you know, um, they're kind of two different animals, and at least in the adult literature, they're treated very differently. Question of whether or not those osteochondral lesions or potentially OCDs that are, were never picked up um, during adolescence because they were kind of indolent and asymptomatic. I think there's a lot more in foot and ankle that we still have yet to really uncover, and I'm kind of excited to be involved in research that is kind of getting away from the standard knee, shoulder uh, world of sports. So hopefully we'll have some better answers on the horizon. Did you happen to look at all at instability of the ankle at the same time as looking at those OCDs? We didn't. Again, I think that was just unfortunately a flaw of the retrospective nature, but um, also something that I think would be valuable. I blame Todd. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that the valuable lesson of how well, you know, our kid patients often listen to us and just going off of symptoms and they feel great and start doing things. And, and I think I'm, I'm constantly reminding myself and my residents of, you know, long-term prognosis for these and what we're worrying about in the acute phase versus, you know, how many total ankle replacements get done in, you know, in the world, the United States versus total knees. And so trying to re- remind myself, you know, our, our goals of getting them better now, keeping them active, potentially keeping weight loss off so that they can get back, you know, versus what the, the long-term outcomes are, which, you know, we don't have great studies that really tell us about what those are going to be either. Good point And, uh, Great study. Thank you, Kathleen. And next up is uh, Dr. Vandevelt. This uh, abstract is entitled Anatomic versus Non-Anatomic Anterolateral Tenodesis in Combination with ACL Reconstruction, Sometimes Cheaper is Better. So in this study, the authors used 10 cadaveric knees to compare anatomic ALL reconstruction with non-anatomic uh, lateral extraarticular tenodesis type reconstruction using the central third of the IT band. 
So both of these are meant to resist internal rotation. In other words, they help the ACL prevent pivoting. So in the cadavers, when the ACL and those anterior lateral structures like the ALL were severed, sure enough, there was a lot of instability and pivoting. When the ACL was reconstructed, the pivoting improved but was not eliminated. Then when an anatomic ALL reconstruction was added, it really didn't have much effect at all. When the non-anatomic LET type reconstruction was done, it helped really only in mid-flexion, um, and it was also less likely to fail when heavy loads were applied to knee than the ALL. So the authors concluded that the non-anatomic procedure is apparently superior and also has the benefits of being simpler and less expensive. So to our moderators. Yeah, so first I was just going to let Sam know that it was apparently 589 days that uh, Belgium went without a government. And I didn't have to look that up. I, I just knew that off the top of my head. <laughs> Thirty-nine and five forty. I forgot. Yeah, right. Yeah, I mean, you you would have been close if you just guessed, right? Um, I guess uh, one of the clarifications I want to kind of get from your article because I've I've definitely tried doing your kind of LET approach where I just take part of that IT band and kind of dock it over. Did you use kind of a true anatomic landmark to be consistent with the insertion on the femur? That's the the one part I wasn't clear about. No, that's a that's a good question. Uh, No. Next question. That was a good answer. Yeah, it was straightforward, wasn't it? <laughs> well, I, can, I, can, I can also give you the long biomechanical answer. So it started because, you know, back in 2015, when the whole ALL sort of exploded, like a lot of people, we also developed our ALL. Uh, we published it in our choscopy techniques. We never published a follow-up because those patients weren't happy. And so we, we went back to our models. So those were in vivo models based on uh, patients doing an in vivo lunch. Um, and then with dual fluoroscopy and MRI modeling, we uh, reproduced the kinematics back in Boston. And so using those models, we basically started measuring what would happen if I were to do an ALL according to the class or Laprade or whatever technique, or what would happen if we were to do something more old fashioned, like a, like a lateral tenodesis. And so, so those were our first sort of uh, preliminary work on this. Alex Kernkamp, who is a um, resident in Holland, who got his PhD recently on this work, he, he pushed it way beyond what I was able to do. And he created these isometry maps, not just looking at a few options like I did in the past, but he really modeled like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of, of different positions where he could technically uh, attach your, your, your uh, tenodesis. And it didn't really matter as long as it stayed within a safe range. So it seems like the critical portion of your lateral tenodesis is the attachment of your gurdy under your LCL. That's your important vector. And then once you start moving up, you can start calling it a Lemaire and Macintosh. And if you go all the way up, you're going to call it a Zarens. That doesn't really affect it uh, as much as you go forward or backwards. So anterior posterior, that's the region you want to avoid. I think this is really interesting because I think this, you know, has just grown and especially as some of the stability studies have come out of Canada, really looking at the addition to this, if, you know, added onto a, a hamstring autographed, you know, ACL reconstruction really does reduce the rates. Um, and, you know, that's something so critical in this young population. I think uh, just to kind of even take a step back for, you know, people who are listening to this, can you give just a, a brief description? It sounds like we've, we've talked about kind of the lateral tenodesis, but give just a brief description of your ALL reconstruction and, you know, top five steps for people who may not even be familiar with this technique. 
Sure. So I, I don't call it the ALL uh, reconstruction since there would be the anatomic reconstruction of what has been described in the literature. What we do is a you start your regular ACL reconstruction using whatever um, femoral fixation device. We use the Arthrex tightrope, and I do draw out on the lateral aspect of my femur where sort of the ridge is, going back to Eric's question before, because even though I say I, I don't care, I do want to be consistent. And so I do mark on the lateral ridge before starting the whole procedure where I'm going to put my 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 um, tightrope button. And so I place my ACL, I fix it all. And then once you've finished with your ACL reconstruction and you are in a patient where you feel like this patient needs additional stability, benefit of this technique is too, you can just test it right there. And you say, you know what, I'm just not happy yet. It's just a little too much internal rotation. You extend the incision that was the stab incision that was used for your femoral tide rope by just two, three centimeters or American inches or something. You can use it as a mobile window and you'll notice it in the OR as well. Once you go through the IT band to put your femoral button down, you already make your starting point for your graft and you just extend the slip of, of IT all the way down to Gurdy uh, subcutaneously. You don't have to like dissect out the whole lateral side. You can just go through your window. Uh, I make it one centimeter, so I just go um, one centimeter more posterior and I just take out the strip. You palpate where the LCL is, tunnel under. You just ask for an empty needle. And you, the, the fiber wires or whatever they're called sticking out of your, your tightrope system are right there. And just with an empty needle, you sew your, your IT band to your, your button. And that's it. So it adds about, I don't know, anywhere between 10 minutes, 15 minutes to the case. But biomechanically, I mean, like, so this, so we sort of predicted it based on our in vivo studies that we published uh, a while back. But now this cadaver study again shows that, I mean, we really stress those knees. I mean, the, the, the forces applied over the knees in these these uh, these cadavers were, were huge. And uh, I was, first of all, happy to see that our standard ACL does really well. So I mean, <laughs> let's not forget, like a normal ACL does what it needs to do. But it, when there is the added instability, and I got the, I, I actually identified the ALL and just got the structures and whatever was around it. And the increased in instability or I shouldn't call it instability. Uh, the increased uh, laxity wasn't captured by the ACL, specifically not around 45 up to 90 degrees. And so that's where the LAT really just did its job. And of course, we're dealing with 80-year-old cadaver knees. I think one of the sort of drawbacks of the study was that I didn't back up the anatomic ALL tenodesis. So I, I put in monster screws and it still got pulled out. So perhaps if uh, I would have backed up my ALL with some sort of cortical fixation just to keep it in there, I would have seen over constraints. But something happened that pulled out the ALL. So my logical brain says, well, either way, I don't want it. I don't want over constraints or I, want, I don't want my graph to fail. Whereas with the LET, a couple of sutures and they just kept on working. So that's when I am convinced, you know, like, you know, this works and I use it in clinic. And then just kind of one, I think, point of controversy is when, when you're tensioning inside, uh, tying down those sutures, what position is the knee and the leg in when you're doing that? So, uh, and again, so the reason we chose this path is that the um, non-anatomic LET is relatively isometric, which is in contrast to the ALL, which is getting tighter with increasing flexion. And so 
it was always a little confusing to us because we're like, yeah, but you either, you want to control your rotation around 30, 40 degrees, for the, but then if you tied it around 30, 40, or even closer to extension, as it sometimes is described, you're going to over-constrain the knee towards 90 degrees, which is what we saw in the study. So if you tie it at 90 degrees, it's not going to do anything when it goes to extension, because it's only going to get slacker. So biomechanically, I'm, I'm, I'm not sold on the ALL. Plus, I just also don't like drilling tunnels around my femur attachment. Just to uh, let the audience know, I, I think, Sam, you have a PhD, don't you? I, I do, yes. Yeah, and, and your PhD is in what background? It's uh, biomechanics. Yeah, perfect. So I only wanted to stress that for the idea of everything you just took us through. That was beautiful. And I think it really highlighted the, the potential importance or potential non-importance of the ALL in that reconstruction or repair or however you want to call your LET, right? And I think that's great. I mean, of course, it's a little weird. I mean, it seems like it has some sort of political thing almost. And as I mentioned, I'm from Belgium. We can go without politics for a long time. I just wanted to find out what was the best possible additional uh, reconstruction. And, and it seems like the people who were doing work in the 70s and 80s, they knew what they were doing. Uh, all the Macintoshes and, and I had the uh, honor of working with Sarens. I mean, they, they knew the knee. And, and it's just, it's a good path and it's, it's a safe, fast procedure. Yeah, that's great. I was just going to say, well, on the note of kind of bringing up Macintosh and maybe we'll talk about a little modified Macintosh idea of say like the IT band reconstructions of an ACL. How do you think that fits in, in your model? Obviously you didn't test that directly per se, but similar. Similar. So it's, it's, it's on, it's on the agenda, but actually it's the interesting thing is that like, for example, how I'm, I'm blanking now the Kocher uh, uh, technique basically does this. So it, it follows the same route and they also attach it right around the sort of lateral ridge of the femoral condyle is where you put some sutures. Well, it's exactly the same spot where I put my uh, femoral tightrope uh, button. So in the end, we're all going back in the same circle, literally. But so, yeah, I think sometimes maybe there might be a place for disconnecting them. Like where if I do an end, for example, like I do an all inside ACL and I will uh, go anatomic and I will fix them in extension. But my tenodesis I will fix closer to 45 degree of flexion. So I like this way because I can sort of disconnect it to you with the classic IT uh, loop around the knee kind of travels. It's harder to do. And if you had to say for, you know, this is kind of a little bit of an emerging technique, I think for people, if you, I know you kind of said your technique of putting in your ACL fixation and then looking at your stability internal rotation, could you give people, you know, a couple key factors? Are you looking at hyperextension of the knee? Are you looking at bait and scores preoperatively? Is it really just the amount of internal rotation and are they having a, a pivot glide still even after your reconstruction? Can you give the audience just a couple key factors they should look at uh, once the reconstruction is completed that maybe they should consider adding this procedure on? So right now I can only give sort of personal N equals one experience. Actually, I should give all of my credit to uh, Ewald van Arkel, who is a surgeon in Holland who trained me, and he has been pivotal in developing this. And so with him, we're, we're now randomizing uh, with our fluoroscopic technique to just see what it does long-term, what happens with the cartilage, kinematics, just go deeper into it with the actual uh, techniques, and then determine what happens. Because to be honest, I'm 
starting to use it more and more and more and more. It used to be just revisions and, and hyperlax and, and contralateral already and then sort of the knee abusers. But now it's just anyone basically who is, how should I put it? It's almost like as if you, if you need your ACL repaired, consider an LET. And otherwise, maybe you shouldn't get your ACL repair, uh, reconstructed. Because, I mean, again, I'm, I'm training in Europe and we offer a lot of our patients the option of like, you know, let's just see how it happens. What happens? Just go and train with a physical therapist and, well, maybe they go to a different country for their reconstruction. And then um, a lot of people are happy if they're in a sedentary life. But when I do an ACL, I really want to, you know, make that knee stable. And then again, like in this study, it shows that in an unstable one, where if you're on the table and I call it a one-hand pivot, where if I can just hold a knee and, and I can just do the whole kablunk uh, with one hand, I like to add the additional stability. I think that's really helpful. And it's helpful information as we, I think, continue to learn about this. I think there's lots more to come in the upcoming years on this topic. Yeah, that's fantastic. All right, one more. So next up, we'll ask Dr. Edmonds to shift from being a moderator to being an author. And we're going to talk about his abstract clinical outcomes, survivorship, and return to sports after arthroscopic capsular repair with suture anchors for adolescent multidirectional shoulder instability uh, with a mean follow-up of six years. So Dr. Edmonds and his co-authors looked at 50 shoulders and adolescent athletes with multidirectional shoulder instability treated with capsular repair. Most of them did well. About a quarter of them failed and had a reoperation. And those that did fail, typically uh, that happened within three years. Just over half returned to the same level of sport. So um, with that, I'll hand things over to Dr. Beck. Or Eric, if you want to ask yourself some questions, that works too. If I fill a bust, I could keep her from asking me any questions, huh? Hey, you, you could you could do it. You know, I, I, think, I think the biggest thing that's so interesting to me is, you know, shoulders in general you know, being more aggressive surgically, yet seeing that our failure rates are very high. It doesn't matter if it's multidirectional, if it's first time, um, you know, what, what do we, what do you think we're missing in this big picture that we've got, you know, 20 and 30% failure rates of, of our surgical outcomes in, in all these patients? Yeah. Well, I guess the first thing is, is always hoping that it's not me as a surgeon. Right. Uh, and it is something that I obviously have discovered of looking at anterior instability, posterior instability, looking at all these different, different ways of looking at it. And they, they just seem to come out with these much higher failure rates than what we've seen in adults. And we like to blame the fact that they're young. You know, we have another study looking at specifically American football. And for every year that they played after having an anterior instability stabilizing surgery, they gained another 10% risk of having it come out again. And I think that one for me, at least made me feel better about the fact that we were finding these higher rates of failure in kids, because obviously the more time they're putting into those high risk activities, the higher the risk. I mean, it makes sense intuitively. Yeah, I, th I think, you know, that's anecdotally experience that I've had you get these kids back and it just seems like a matter of time just to get them out of high school and kind of phase them out into their adult world and just can I get them through their one more year? Can I brace them? Can I keep them? Just kind of hope, hoping and praying. Um, how does your surgical technique change for these MDI patients versus just a, a typical traumatic bank heart? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. The MDI patient, it's, it's an interesting group or a cohort, we're even trying to define it. You know, we had kind of a hard time in the literature going, 
what is somebody with multi-directional instability? Like, how is that established in the literature? And it was kind of a little bit all over the place. And so we just kind of defined it for ourselves, saying that they had to have a drive-through sign. Uh, they needed to have at least a sulcus uh, and with presumptively having either anterior or posterior instability on drawer testing, you know, having an MRI that was read as having capacious capsule, you know, just just trying to like get like, how do we say this person is an MDI patient, right? Uh, unfortunately, when we first started seeing these patients, because it, it is, you know, we have on average six year follow up. When we first started seeing them, we weren't necessarily getting bite and scores on everybody. Uh, we do that now, of course, because now we've realized the importance of looking at that overall laxity. But back in the day, that we didn't identify that early enough, and so we didn't have that data to kind of compare. But in that definition, I think for me is finding a way to get rid of the drive-through sign, but without overly removing the drive-through side, right? Uh, like I don't want to constrain that joint so much that they complain of having, you know, range of motion issues that they can't get back to the sport that they actually want to get back to. Uh, I would say the predominant number of these patients wanted to go back to sports in some way. So even though we only had a 50% rate of kids actually going back, when we first had the conversation about going to have surgery, because we treated them all non-operatively first, having gone through the non-op, and then them saying, but I really want to get back to, you know, tennis, swimming, gymnastics, water polo, whatever it was. And then ultimately having only 50% of them go back to sport. I mean, I think is kind of a telling moment where when we look at all those kind of prognostic or outcome scores, and they were kind of in, well, they're not really percentages, right? But we'll call them, they're in that 80% category of like they were doing well, uh, you know, so they're kind of in the good category, but then only 50% of them go back to sport. Now, some of that may land, and I think it was Peter Feberkant that actually maybe put the study together that showed that by the time they get to, you know, last couple of years of high school, 70% of athletes have stopped playing sports just because they got older. They decided they didn't like it. They didn't like their teammates. They didn't like their coach. Like it was reasons outside of injuries and things like that. So trying to tease that out in the mix is obviously a little bit difficult, but I would say 50% is much lower than what we saw in any of our anterior instability patients or posterior instability patients. So do you think this made you more optimistic about their surgical recovery or less optimistic, really wanting to push the non-op management first of all? Yeah, I still think non-op is great, right? I mean, it, it's hard to go through training, you know, from 15, 20 years ago where we were like, never touch anybody with multidirectional instability, you know, because they're just drug seeking or whatever thing we came up with and trying to translate into that. No, I, I really do believe and and I feel like Mike Bush really has sold this idea that there are people that are having difficulties with their ADLs that you can definitely make them feel better. And maybe it doesn't get them back to playing, you know, rugby, but we can have them having a normal life. And I think the big question for me, I'll be a moderator for a second. What about those 25% that failed? What happened with those kids? Oh, I'm glad you asked. <laughs> the thing I've been trying to get a hold of these kids, because I want to know, I operated on most of those kids a second time, right? And I said, well, let's try again, you know, and, and in some different way, maybe tighten the front instead of the back and, you know, try to rebalance the shoulder, do something different. But I'm having a really hard time getting a hold of these folks that failed. Uh, maybe they don't want to talk to us. Maybe they're, they, maybe they're still failed, you know what I mean? Like maybe they're not doing well. But I think it's really important to know if you fail kind of capsulorophy for an MDI patient, should you try again? Right. Uh, and I think that's really a, a significant question to ask. And uh, I, I have yet to been able to figure that out. 
And these were all arthroscopic, not open capsule orifices. They were, yeah, they were. Because I know there's lots of discussions about are, should we even be attempting to do these arthroscopically? Can we do it as well when open is such a great procedure? And and is that procedure being a lost art as people are just learning arthroscopy and just saying let's quick and easy, let's get this done? I'm used to this. You know, are we losing the art of open capsule or, or capsule orifice and capsular shifts? No, for sure. I think that's a real, a real potential issue because I do think there's times where an open approach is very reasonable. I think for these MDI patients and the posterior patients, doing an open capsulography is rather difficult. Uh, having done that or attempted to do that in training, uh, you know, in my early years before we really kind of moved with the technology to do everything arthroscopically, it's really hard to get to that backside and, and do work. You know, and my concern is that even if I do an open approach. To get to MDI, I can do the inferior portion and the anterior portion really well, but I can't get that posterior side. And I unfortunately have operated on a few Ehlers-Danlos kids that uh, may have had some Munchausen by proxy. They may have had their own just Munchausen disease. Like it's it's hard to know what's going on with some of these kids that within six weeks of doing actual reconstruction of the anterior capsule open where we put in allograft tendon they were dislocating again. And so it just makes me really nervous about doing an anterior approach open in these kids. But the only times I've tried it has been these kind of really disaster type individuals. You kind of hinted to it. Did, did any of them get over tightened and get stiff? Have you seen that in, in any of these patients? I know we worry about it and, and can we over constrain it? Can we lose range of motion? You know, the assumption is they're going to just stretch out their own native tissue. Did you see any of that as a complication in your patients? Yeah, no, actually, I think the range of motion uh, afterwards was all really good. I, I will throw a caveat on in there that when we measure range of motion in clinic and you compare it to the other side and you go, oh, look, the range is similar, at least the arc is the same, you know, like uh, it looks pretty good. I know that when somebody gets back out and throws a baseball or throws a water polo, that they are going well beyond what I can measure in clinic just by pushing on it. That part I'm not totally convinced of, but I'm not even convinced of that even when I do, you know, replissage or doing other capsulorophies in the shoulder. But at least in talking to the patients, they all tell me that they don't feel limited by that. Yeah, I think it's a really interesting population and, and you know, still mind-boggling for a lot of us. But I think this gives us, you know, some hope that surgery can be helpful, but we clearly still have this piece that haven't quite been figured out yet. If it's a, you know, scapular, you know, kinematics dyskinesis issue, if it's a soft tissue, just they are some borderline EDS undiagnosed. Um, we definitely have a population we're not sure what to do with yet with these. Well, thank you guys so much for uh, taking the time to join the uh, conversation tonight. This is excellent. Looking forward to the uh, expanded conversation next week at uh, the Sports Subspecialty Day session. So, uh, again, for the audience, that was Dr. Jennifer Beck from UCLA, Eric Edmonds from Rady Children's Hospital in San Diego, Sam Vandeveld from Columbia, Kathleen McGuire from CHOP, and John Schlechter from Children's Hospital of Orange County. And hope to see all of you guys next week. Thanks, Thanks for having us. Thank you so much. Thank you.